Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thank you for joining us again in New Books Network. Today we have Anne Murphy, who is Professor of History and Executive Dean of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Portsmouth. Previous to that, she had been at the University of Hertfordshire and at the School of Social Sciences at the University of Exeter. Sorry, yes. Before coming to academic life, she was for 12 years working as a city trader in foreign exchange derivatives. Her research focuses on early modern financial markets and investment behavior and the organization of management in 18th century Bank of England. Her latest publication and the topic of today's chat is Virtuous Bankers, A Day in the Life of the 18th Century Bank of England, published by Princeton University Press this year. And Murphy, thank you very much for being with us in New Books Network. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. How, first of all, how is it that you decided to move from being a derivatives trader to become an academic, and particularly an academic in in financial history? So I left banking in 1997. Uh, It was just about the time when the euro uh, was taking over. I before that I traded a lot of European currencies, uh, so my my job, if you like, was coming to an end or about to change quite significantly. Uh, so I took the decision to make a, make a new start. Uh, I have to say also that while banking was really really exciting when I was in my twenties uh, and Uh, sort of coming out of school and going into the city of the 1980s, just post Big Bang, um, and when so many changes were happening, um, you know, so so much uh, being developed uh, and really, really interesting changes to the way that we managed finance at that time. Um, by the time it got to the later 90s, I think I'd, I felt I'd seen most of it, that I'd, I was not feeling very stimulated by the environment. It didn't feel like it was intellectually stretching. Uh, so I took the decision that I was going to quit uh, and go to university instead. I had no clue what I wanted to do at all. All, all I knew was that I didn't want to be in investment banking until retirement. So I needed to make another choice. But university was entirely about giving myself three years to think about it and think about what to do next. Right. And then how you've dedicated the book to the late Bill Cottrell. 
um, a friend of both of ours and a uh, very respected, not only a good friend, but a highly respected scholar. So how did you met Phil and, and why did you wanted to dedicate the book to him? So as I said, I, I went to university. I went to uh, University of Leicester and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, but I uh, studied history and politics. Uh, and one day going up, um, you know, the University of Leicester's history department is in the Attenborough Tower, for those of you who know Leicester, uh, and it has a paternoster lift. Uh, so it's an open lift and it goes up up and down the floors and you can see out of it you can you're used to be able to see the notice boards of all the different departments as you go up and down um and one day i noticed the an advertisement for an ma in international economic history uh, and decided okay well i'm coming towards the end of my degree uh that sounds like something that i want to do and i'd, I'd figured out that i liked university and i wanted to stay um so i wandered down to phil's office uh, and kind of introduced myself uh, and said, this is what I want to do. Um, and he was, you know, he was so welcoming and he was, you know, he was so interesting and just such an impressive scholar. He would come in. So I I did study uh, this MA and Phil taught on it uh, and he would come into the room with no notes whatsoever. And he would, you know, he'd talk for hours uh, about almost anything, I mean, just incredibly knowledgeable um, so I think Phil, I hope Phil and I became friends kind of over that period and over the period when I was doing uh, my PhD. He wasn't um, he wasn't my PhD supervisor, uh, but he was a mentor uh, throughout. And then when I had a postdoc at Leicester, uh, he was my mentor then. And then in the first few years of my career, um, whenever there was a problem, whenever there was something that I I really needed to talk about and think about, it would be Phil um, that I would go to. So the this this book took a long time to write. So a lot of the early uh, conversations about this book and uh, the kind of sources that I was working with and what I could do with them um, and and what they might tell us about banking, those conversations were conversations I had with Phil. Uh, so I wanted to honour that, but I also wanted to honour what a wonderful, innovative, interesting scholar of banking history uh, Phil was. Um, and I really do, you know, I, I meant the dedication. I really do hope he would have approved uh, of what the book turned out to be. In normal circumstances, I would have stopped this, the, the interview here because it's such a great book that I can only praise the great effort that you have done. and. I do hope and, and I sincerely think that Phil would have will have approved. But let's let's uh, allow others to um, have a peek of of this work, very detailed, very conscientious, and accidentally, you know, written in such a in such a uh, nice prose that invites you know you 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 just cannot. Uh, Put it aside. So, congratulations on that. And and before we we go into into discussing the book itself, what sort of advice would you have to early career scholars that are thinking of publishing a book? You know, is it a good idea? How to go about it? How to choose 
of publishing. Um, so thank you for your kind words. I, I really do appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Um, I think for early career scholars, I think particularly those uh, who want to find work in history departments, uh, having that monograph is an invaluable part of their CV. Slightly different if you're if you're thinking about going into an economics department or into a business school. Um, but I would say also that that most people, having worked on their um, their dissertation, they have something to say in monograph form. Um, and they should certainly consider whether it's appropriate to say that. But I think also remember that books, um, they, they have to sell. So they have to have a broader appeal than a standard dissertation. They have to have a market that they can reach out to. And I think there are, there are kind of two ways of thinking about that market. Either you have a scholarly market plus perhaps a wider audience. And that's certainly what I was trying to do with this book. I was trying to connect both with a scholarly market uh, who, who I hope will be engaged with various themes in the book. Um, but I was sort of trying to reach out to a wider audience as well, an audience that I know is out there. Um, I guess of people like me who are kind of ex-financiers who still remain interested uh, in the world of finance, and also, you know, we we know how popular history is uh, as a subject. In other contexts, though, I think uh, if you're thinking about uh, a more narrow scholarly audience, you've got to think about how you appeal not just to your immediate peers, uh, but to other scholars who might be interested. So I think it's about uh, making sure that you contextualize your work really well within broad literatures. Uh, tell tell the readership what it is that they should gain from this, how they might understand it, how it might reach out to speak to the work that they want to do. So uh, for example, I, I try in my work not only to reach out to economic historians, but to say something to social and cultural historians about the value of thinking about finance in their work and about the value of understanding the financial atmosphere, the financial milieu of the of the 18th century as part of everyday life, as part of cultural life, as part of life uh, that is expressed in art and in literature. Um, and I think th those sorts of things are really important as well. I would say also to anybody thinking about writing a book is that it can be really hard work uh, writing a monograph. Uh, this one took me a long time. Uh, so do think about uh, timeliness, think about getting it done. It, it needs to be finished. It's never going to be perfect. So every time you go back to the, the work that you do, you kind of spot different things and more things that could have uh, gone into it. So it, it'll never be perfect, but it needs to be finished. Um, and then I would also say be really mindful of what a publisher will do for you and, and won't do for you. Um, I cannot praise Princeton highly enough for the way that they have supported this book and the way that they have supported me throughout the book, and also the way that they pushed me to get it finished, because it was it was definitely Princeton who were pushing in that last sort of year to six months to, to have the book finished. Um, 
Other publishers perhaps won't do that that sort of thing in quite that way, or that you might not have a book that that will sort of connect with audiences in quite that way. So think about how you will do it. Um, you know, think about how you might use your social media and your networks and your contacts to make sure that you leverage the work that you've done so that it finds uh, a wide audience. There's no point in writing something that only three people are ever going to read. You you know, you want your work to be out there. You want it to be read. And then I suppose that my last bit of advice, uh, which is a bit of advice for everybody who's not already joined, but join ALCS, uh, the Authors Licensing and Copyright Society, I think, uh, because they collect uh, royalties for you. Uh, and you find yourself at the end of each year with a very nice check uh, that comes back from that. So it's definitely worthwhile doing. It's definitely worthwhile uh, getting access to those royalties. Thank you um, for that and for that introduction to our um, early career researchers. So let's move on to the book itself. Um, there are two things that stand out or that I think that brings the book together, you you tell me. But one of them is the inspector's report. And and you can tell the audience a little bit more of what this is and the importance and how it came about. Secondly, your um, attempt, not attempt, but the way that you've structured the book is as the title says, the day in the life of the bank. So you are taking one period during the day, so it's not minute by minute, it's not around an individual, but it's around processes and around activities that are happening in the bank throughout the day, but probably in some instances, they are either intensified or only take place at one point in the day. And... Through this, then we go into, or you go into other other things. So let's let's go back then and and tell us about how you found out this inspector's report. What is the importance of of, of this report, and how, with on the basis of this report, you are able to contribute to the overall discussion of late eighteenth century finance. So I discovered the inspector's reports um, when I was doing my postdocs. So it would have been sort of 2007-ish. Uh, and it was just one of those lucky things. I'd gone through, um, you know, I, I suppose I'd recommend everybody to do um, J.H. Clapham's uh, Old History of the Bank, which was written in the 1940s. And I looked at the sources that he mentioned um, things that I hadn't looked at while I was doing my PhD. Uh, and I called these up in the archive and, and Clapham had, had just some dismissed them, really. He just said uh, something like that they're, they're matters of purely internal concern. Uh, so I just called them up to have a quick look at them, thinking I'd have a look and I'd, I'd send them back. There wouldn't be anything interesting. But once I got into them, what I discovered was that here was a complete description of everything that happened in the bank along with all these really sort of nice little vignettes of individuals and processes and things that were being done, uh, concerns that the inspectors had. Um, and that sort of, that, that kind of suggested to me that there was 
there was something there to to explore uh, in more depth. I didn't do much more at that time, but you know, I knew it was something that I wanted to come back to. I'm um, sorry to interrupt you, but probably we we want to clarify or contextualize that the 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 inspector report is put together by three of the directors when the bank is about 90 years old. So the bank had been going on. It had become part of of um, the industrial network of the financial market. It was playing certain very important roles as, as, as a bank of the state. And, and you explained to what extent it is really a bank of the state. It still remains a private entity. And and it's at this point that the, the this report is being commissioned as a way to look at into the the working of the bank, correct? That's right, yes. So uh, these three inspectors, these three directors, spend an entire year going around the bank from March 1783 to March 1784. It's a period of crisis, so it's the end of the War of American Independence, uh, and I think they're definitely doing this to kind of end off interest from the state in what they're doing and whether they're they're um, whether they're doing this work well, how corrupt the bank is or isn't, whether the you know there there are lots of questions about whether the bank should not necessarily be replaced because I think that would have been impossible by that time, but whether there should be uh, the capacity to set up rival institutions that might take away some of the bank's business. So they are very definitely trying to assert the virtue and value of the bank through the work that they do. But they, but within that, they do all sorts of other really interesting things. And you asked me about uh, the way that I came to sort of the idea of, of a day in the life. Um, and it was it was quite odd, actually, because I, I must have read the, the minutes probably three or four times before it occurred to me that it was littered with references to time. Uh, so all throughout the day, they're saying, we do this. This is the cutoff time is noon. It takes us about 20 minutes to do this. Uh, people are leaving at three o'clock. Our lunch break is between uh, half past one and three o'clock. So the sort of references to time are absolutely everywhere. Um, and I sort of started off an exploration of that and wrote an article about time, uh, which I hope kind of connected with the, the E.P. Thompson arguments uh, about time and work. Uh, but it also suggested to me at that point that if you wanted to, you could write a day in the life. Um, but, I also, but I also kept dismissing it. So I kept thinking, yes, I could do that. But that, that isn't that just a mad idea when what you want to do is to tell the story of an institution and how it works. Um, and isn't it a mad idea because so much happens in the morning and then there's a sort of hiatus in the afternoon. So how how are you going to get past that? Um, and I, I remember having this really great conversation with David Kinniston uh, when he was writing his book about the Bank of England. And I said to him, oh, I thought I could do this. I thought I could write a day in the life. And he said to me, oh, definitely, you should definitely do that. Um, and at that point, the, the idea kind of crystallized and I decided that I could um, right up until I think about half a dozen times through the writing process when I was really pulling my hair out. Um, and as you said, you know, there are 
There are times when it's very much being driven by what's going on at that particular time. But you have to fit in things like management uh, and you have to talk about occupational health uh, and you have to talk about the Gordon riots because they're, you know, they're sort of pivotable to, and you have to talk about what the building looks like. So where do you fit all of those things in? Um, all the things that kind of happen across the day, within the day. Um, and that, that, those were the bits that drove me crazy during the writing period. Thank you. Well, yeah. And how did you went about and um, collected other evidence and what type of other evidence were, were you collecting to be able to to patch up? Because they, they, there's, the, the directors are talking to themselves. They are writing in 18th century um, format, of course, which is, I mean, we can read it, but it's, of course, different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, yes, to be able, I mean, there are some some bits that you can get from uh, what other people have done. But how do you go about and, and, you know, collect this other material? And what other material are you trying to bring in to, to complement um, or, or actually to build the story on? So... I think scholars of the Bank of England uh, are very lucky because the bank has been very good about maintaining its records and keeping its records. It's kept lots and lots of things. So there are there's lots of stuff in the bank. Uh, so things like salary records and uh, records of sort of nascent interviews that they, they do with uh, men coming in uh, to jobs at the bank. Uh, there are stock ledgers, uh, there are transfer books, there are the general ledgers. So all of those sorts of things are there and you can look at them. Um, and I think what I what I perhaps needed to be reminded of was their value as sources, but also their value as objects. To, so to think about them and to think about what the bank looked like and felt like and smelt like uh, and how it was experienced by individuals. The Banks Museum is really good for that as well. Uh, so the Banks Museum is kind of set out in ways that allow you a little bit to experience what it might have been like uh, in the 18th and 19th century. So that was really useful. You can look at the, the trunks and uh, the, the, the ways that the banknotes looked. Uh, there are also lots of images that are available, both in caricature form Uh, but also in representations of the individuals uh, and uh, the spaces within the bank. So I, I tried to use those to get a sense of uh, what it might have looked like and what it what it might have felt like. Uh, plans of the bank. Um, you, you can. Um, so there's a great book by Daniel Abramson uh, on the architecture of the bank, which was incredibly useful uh, to me. Uh, thinking about not only the way that the bank was built and constructed, but also how it sat within its landscape. Uh, and then I drew on all sorts of other uh, sources from uh, the 18th century. Um, so things like um, information about fire engines and uh, night watchmen, um, how much, what, what 50 pounds per year, which was the starting wage, Uh, would have meant uh, to individuals, all those sorts of things I found out from pamphlet literature uh, at the time. Um, and then I hope I, I tried to sort of read quite widely um, from, from colleagues' work uh, around not only 
what the banking environment was, but also the physical landscape, uh, the ways that people interacted. So I, I used, for example, uh, literature on shopping to try and think about what the experience of being in those public spaces uh, might be. So how how people would have negotiated the banking hall, for example, those those sorts of things. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the structure, which is split into six chapters and how the themes come together and how as this day is progressing you're touching on the different um activities so if you want to walk us through the the the, the six chapters from opening the gates to guardian of public credit please uh so starts when the gates open in the morning uh so six o'clock in the morning in the summer seven o'clock in the morning in the winter um, and uh, if, with that sort of opening chapter, I look at the architecture of the bank, what it would have looked like for those clerks who were working there. But also I look at how the bank was set up for the day and how that kind of interconnected with a polite society and um, a, a kind of sense of the bank's customer base as as being uh, one that didn't need to be assailed with the with the dirt and uh, the bustle of city streets. You know that, that it need the bank needed to be kept clean. It needed to be kept as a space that uh, catered to a genteel uh, clientele. Um, then the the following chapter is all about the 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 process of banking really. So the issuance of banknotes, uh, discounting of bills of exchange, uh, extension of credit. And a lot of that business went on in the morning because that was when business owners, merchants uh, were around and kind of doing their business, their, their, their walks through London, their connections uh, with colleagues, uh, people who they would have been working with. Um, and they would have visited the bank first thing in the morning. The bank also had a midday cutoff point uh, for those sorts of transactions. So that meant that they had to be done in the morning as well. I suppose what I found really interesting there was the management of discounting bills of exchange, uh, particularly in the way that credit decisions were made. Um, and there's some interesting things to say about whether it was uh, the basis of kind of personal credit or more impersonal credit uh, at the end of the 18th century. And I think, I think it's a bit of a mix of both. By 11 o'clock, we sort of move on to the next chapter, which is the brokers and the jobbers coming to the bank and the market in the state's debt and the bank shares opening up. There's a space in the 18th century bank where the market gathers uh, and it's an open outcry market with all of the kind of uh, disruption and noise that that brings. I think the, the banking hall itself is quite a genteel space. The brokers exchange where the market is gathering is much less so. It's much more of a noisy, disrupted and disruptive space, a more risky space, a space where, you know, you might be assailed by uh, pickpockets uh, or street sellers or prostitutes or, you know, all of those sorts of people could have made it into that particular space. There's a lot there to say about just the process of managing the state's debt and the way that the bank managed that so as to inculcate a sense of trust between the people who were lending the state money uh, and the state itself. And I, I think it's very clear that the bank stood as a mediator 
between those two parties and created a sense of trust uh, for the two. By about one o'clock, the, the rhythm of the bank is really changed quite significantly. And the rhythm of the city is changing as well. Uh, so lunchtime, uh, what we would call lunchtime, sort of dinner time in the 18th century, is about sort of two o'clock onwards. Uh, so people are stopping the work that they do. Uh, they're taking time out in uh, taverns or coffee houses uh, or chop houses to sort of sit down and eat. Um, you're very much in a kind of social uh, basis. I'm sure business was still done there, but it's business in social spaces rather than business uh, in office spaces. And this 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 was this was one of my sticking points when I was writing the book. So for a long time, that chapter had about a thousand words in it of the clerks went off to lunch and here is where they had their lunch. Um, and eventually, I I figured out I could use that chapter to explain what was happening in the, the mid-afternoon when the senior men were all leaving the bank. So they left about half past three and they left it in the hands of the more junior men. Uh, so I use that chapter really to talk about hierarchies, to talk about the way that men worked their way up from an initial uh, entry period into the bank and then how they, how they rose to high office. Uh, I talk about... Uh, levels of subordination and uh, who who was in charge of who, who paid attention to who. Um, and I also kind of use that uh, to talk about what the incentives were to act well in the interests of the bank. By the time you get into the later afternoon, again, the, the, the sort of the process of the public within the bank uh, has really wound down. So chapter five is about the accounting processes. Uh, and there are lots of these and I found it really fascinating that what we're talking about is an institution that is trying to live update so that the uh, the ledgers are ready for the next day, um, but all with ledgers and quill and pen. Uh, so the sort of work that kind of happens automatically now with a kind of update, a computer update overnight, they were doing that in the evening updating the key ledgers, making sure that they were they were ready uh, for the next day. And that process of accounting really is a process of demonstrating accountability as well. Um, so notaries come into the bank at five o'clock and they expect to see some of the ledgers updated. Uh, people can see those ledgers, they can ask for them. Um, and therefore the, the very process of keeping the ledgers and keeping them well had to be done and had to be seen to be done. Um, there's also an element in that chapter about the occupational health of clerks who were spending their entire day sitting hunched over ledgers and not not really moving. Um, so their their eyesight is poor. Uh, they've got repetitive strain injury. They've got digestive problems because they sat hunched uh, over their desks all day, probably much like typical academics uh, today, perhaps. Um, and then in the evening, um, there is there's a, a long process of sort of locking up. Um, the bank is very active in the evening because the people who are maintaining the accounts are still there. Um, but it's also at risk in the evening. So it's a, at risk from riot, which is, I suppose, one of the things that we would automatically associate, particularly with the Gordon riots um, and the Gordon rioters having attacked the bank. Um, but actually, the real risks are keys left lying around 
Um, and there are very, very many of those. Uh, and the risk of fire, the risk of um, almost a domestic fire. Uh, so candles left unattended to. There are residential spaces within the bank as well that might cause fires. Uh, so the maintenance of that kind of watchfulness uh, to protect the bank is really important, but also what the bank is doing to protect itself against fire. So having its own fire engines, maintaining its own water supply, sending some records out of the bank at the end of every day, uh, putting all of the key ledgers in wheeled trucks so that there, if there is a fire, they can be wheeled out of the bank uh, really quickly. I, I found those processes of just that sort of sense of thought about how you protect yourselves in the 18th century against those risks when the ledgers contain really, you know, a, a good sort of three, two thirds to three quarters of the record of the national debt, which would have been irreplaceable had it gone up in smoke. Um, you've, you've mentioned or, or, uh, or what, what I was going to ask next, which is how we can see at this point in time in, a, in what is already a large organization because it's employing over 300 people. And, and it's, uh, in, in, with, by that measure, it's bigger than many other organizations of, of the time. And it's able to do all of these processes in ways that we would recognize today, but that we also can see or, or makes us think about how they have evolved. You've mentioned, for example, um, that the market actually takes place. I mean, it's face to face and it's taking part in the, in the, in the courtyard of the, of the, of the bank. But today we would think that it, that's the only place where where there where it's happening, but it's not. It's it's actually some of these activities are taking place throughout the city, throughout the um, the, the, the the financial district, and then they they appear or they come together in uh, at the bank. You you also um, let, let 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 me illustrate this with with um, chapter two of, of polite banking. Um, I think that you've opened up an, a number of discussions that need to be, if not reassessed, certainly um, considered deeply. I mean, I, I was just, uh, this discussion between different ways in which money comes about, and, and there are two, broadly two, two schools, the, the, the more economics-oriented and then the cartelist or, or state theory of of money and they're, they're having a big discussion between them. Um, and here you are somewhere in the middle of, of, of this. Uh, there has, in the sense of a number of colleagues coming out with books, looking at the US and how um, the, 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 the roots of the US financial system roughly take place around this time in 1790 in the, um, um, Commonwealth of 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 uh, Massachusetts, and uh, we we leave that discussion aside for the moment. But here you're showing what is happening in the UK, which is the, is the metropolis, and and um, you know you you could see arguments that could go to either one of these two schools of 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 thought. There there is private money, which is one of the things that uh, Lawrence Klein and George Selgin 
and and these type of people have have um, argued, which is the, describing without going into all of the details with elements of the state theory of money, but it's not really state imposed because it's not. I mean, legal tender is is years away. Um, you can pay taxes, but it's not necessarily you know the the state itself lacks um credence like likes you know the you you one of you 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 mentioned how the the debt of of the British state was still being questioned as to whether it was going to be paid. So therefore the way that you're going to redeem that debt, which eventually you would call cash, yes, it's still questionable. I mean it's not that clear that you're gonna uh, uh that you're gonna accept it. But um more to to that where one of the things that I found fascinating in the book is how you're able to take um a, a breathing space or take a, a space within this this discussion and relate as you said in trying to bring these other discussions in it's it very seldom or or I cannot recall now um a discussion in financial history that takes um you know a space to discuss what are the haptics you know where are the the senses what are the the smells where are the sights and how is that affecting the overall working because of course um um you know you you, you tell a little bit of that and the way that paper money works and 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 are making this effort as you said a moment ago to bring social and cultural historians and see that there there is something for them to contribute and to say about finance. I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more on, on this very long question. Uh, sure, yeah. I I think, so for a long time, I think I was very resistant to the idea that um, paper money, that, that the Bank of England's notes was part of the financial revolution. You know, I, I suppose my my financial revolution was kind of the financial revolution of Dixon, um, which was very much about public debt and the way that public debt was managed. Um, and I was persuaded by Christine de Sands' uh, work to think about um, banknotes and the way they were used as part of uh, the financial revolution and and therefore part of uh, the establishment of trust between individuals uh, and the state. Um, and, and the reason she sort of locates uh, banknotes as, as part of the financial revolution is that she talks about them as being accepted for uh, the payment of taxation. Therefore, they become intimately linked with um, the, the process of public credit uh, and it, it's another intimate link between the bank and the state. It, it's it's the state saying, here is our trusted broker, here is our, our trusted contractor. Um, and, I, and I do think thinking about the bank as one of the, the state's contractors uh, in this in this space uh, is, you know, is is really important as well. And so that's the way that I was I was thinking about money. Um, and therefore, trying trying to use that chapter to look at 
the way that money was being processed and the way that the bank was extending credit and using its notes uh, to to become part of the the credibility of public credit. Um, and sort of tying this in with, you know, why, why am I interested in haptics and smell and why am I interested in the idea that the banking hall is is a polite space, you know, is a, is a space where um, the, the kind of sociability of finance is happening. Um, and that's because um, I... I was I was really interested in thinking about how how we understand or how 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 an 18th century actor could understand the creditworthiness of the state, and what the work of people like uh, Craig Muldrew and Mar- Margot Finn tell us is that people were very used to assessing the credibility of individuals, um, and they did that in a whole variety of ways. They certainly did it by looking at uh, their their accounts, you know, by looking at their their sort of paper based behaviour, um, by looking at uh, the way that they acted within financial spaces, but they also looked at their broader behaviour. They they looked at the way that uh, they dressed. They looked at the way who they interacted with, who they were connected with. And um, so, one of the things that I I'm really interested in is thinking about. How how do we understand the state in those terms? What if you if you want to think of the state as an individual, what would you look at? What would you see? What would you observe uh, that demonstrated their creditworthiness? And I think the Bank of England is the site where 18th century actors could go to see, to, you know, to physically experience the state's creditworthiness and credibility. Um, and those sort of haptics, the way that the bank looked, the way that it constructed itself as not ostentatious, but an impressive building, uh, the way that it used certain symbols like Britannia or the statue of William III to ke- to create that sort of connection with the state. And also the way then uh, on a much more sort of prosaic level that you then touch, feel, smell, sense, experience, just the process of exchanging a note or taking a note or buying and selling the debt and seeing the paper on which that was recorded and being able to touch the paper on which that was recorded and learning, I suppose, what what we learn. I mean, we don't use notes anymore, do we? Kind of COVID, COVID put paid to that. But if we if we think about when we use notes on a very regular basis, you wouldn't necessarily have looked at them. You you touched them in your hand and you knew they felt like notes because the paper felt different to to anything else. Um, but when you did look at them, there were certain, you know, there's certain keys that you look for. You know, you you look for the little Britannia, little foil Britannia, you look for the watermark, you look for the the foil strip. That goes through it. So, so what were people in the 18th century looking for uh, when they were doing that sort of thing? I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, how my 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 next to last question would be: How would you avoid, or given the number of similarities that you see with today's management and organization and financial markets? How would you avoid 
this idea of presentism, this idea of imposing today's view criticisms uh, into a different reality. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting question. And it's one that's come up quite a bit already. Uh, so in social media inter interactions with uh, what, you know, what, what, what do you mean virtuous bankers? You know, that, that, that there are no such thing as virtuous bankers. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's an oxymoron. What, what, what are you talking about? Um, so I, I hope that I do avoid presentism. I think there is that there are there are sort of rhymes in history, aren't they? I, I don't think necessarily history repeats itself, um, but it it does rhyme, and there is and um, there is much to be said, I think, for understanding the way that banking works with a sense of understanding the way that these things work today. I don't think had I, had I not worked in financial markets, I don't and and in open outcry markets, I don't think I would have thought of them in the same way. I don't think I would have thought of sound. I don't think I would have thought of movement. Um, I don't think I would have thought of the way that um, you feel excited or you feel anxious within those spaces in quite the same way uh, as I do. So I hope those sorts of um, Kind of modern experiences are are something valuable uh, to bring to an understanding of of the 18th century, but then I do also think we have got to we've got to put ourselves to you know to the stress of understanding um, that this is an environment in which paper is still is still asserting itself. It is still trusted by some, but not trusted by others. Uh, that this is. This is still an environment where there is there is so much to do in order to uh, to maintain credibility. Uh, that this is still an environment where bankers can be convinced of the virtue and the public good of what they are doing, despite uh, evidence of corruption or despite evidence of fee taking or gratuities. Uh, or despite evidence of embezzlement, that the public good uh, can be easily and really assertively maintained uh, by the directors who are doing this, this um, inspection. And I, I, I do think thinking about how that comes about in an 18th century environment uh, is very important. Women receive some attention, primarily as bank customers, Mm -hmm. um, would they be able to play another role? Probably it's a, it's a tricky question, really. What I'm trying really to ask is, is there a gendered story of the Bank of England that needs to be written? Um, yes, uh, but I suspect it's been written. So um, Amy Freud's book, Silent Partners, uh, I think is a really good starting point uh, for that. Had I had I written it a different way, had I had sort of more space or more time, um, it or you know if 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 I had uh, potentially another project in me right now, which I'm not sure that I do, uh, but I I think trying to get to the bottom of who were those women who were acting as brokers and jobbers 
uh, in the market and how how they how their work happened uh, and how they managed to assert themselves uh, is is definitely an important story uh, to tell. Um, understanding better the, the extent to which women as business owners used the bank, uh, I think is really important as well. Um, and I think that story is there in the ledgers uh, to be explored. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 for anybody who's interested, I have a list of projects that that could be done um, around this, but but that's definitely one of them. Well, thank you very much, Anne Murphy, for your time. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and especially around this great project. I do hope that when you finish your your administrative responsibilities, you find time to engage in in another project and and we have time to talk about it um on the fringes and as well as here on the podcast thank you very much i really appreciate your time and it's been lovely talking about the book well this is all for us today please if you are not a subscriber subscribe to new books network and if you are a subscriber do leave us a note or rank us that always helps and sends a very positive um uh, message and help us uh, spread the word uh, that's all for me today. This is Bernardo Batislaso, and we've been talking to Anne Murphy on her book, Virtuous Bankers, A Day in the Life of the 18th Century Bank of England, published by Princeton University Press in 2023.